Friends, if you have your Bible with you, please would you open to book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, it's near the end of the New Testament. Uh, you get the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, the histories. That's a history of the early church. Then you start the letters, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians. Then you get the four, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Moving into the, two, the five that start with T's, Thessalonians, 1 and 2, Timothy, 1 and 2, and Titus. So we're in uh, 1 Timothy. We're going to be starting out 1 Timothy today. Uh, Timothy is a, uh, one of what is called the pastoral letters. It's one of the few letters in the New Testament that are written to individuals. The rest are written to churches. So Romans is written to the church at Rome. Ephesians is written to the church at Ephesus. Philippians is written to the church at Philippi. Timothy is written to Timothy. Titus is written to Titus. Peter is written by Peter. So this is a, this is a book that's been written to Timothy. Uh, Timothy is uh, in a city called Ephesus, and uh, he's a young man, about 35 years old, and Paul has um, settled Timothy or sent Timothy to Ephesus so that he could establish a plumb line of doctrine. Now, I don't know if you've ever been involved in a building project um, or uh, if, you've, uh, if you're in building and you build, uh, or if you've ever built cupboards in your house, or if you've ever tried to um, maybe even move a desk into the corner of your, of your house, and what you've discovered as you put your desk there is that there's a gap on the one side and there isn't a gap on the other side. Or you measure to make the kitchen cupboards, and you make your measurement, and you have all the cupboards made, and you bring them in, and the measurement's okay between corner to corner, but 600 mils back, it's now not fitting because your walls are not straight. Or you put the cupboard in and it fits there, but it doesn't fit down there because your walls are out. And there's a general rule when it comes to walls in your house, and that is that nothing is level and nothing is square. Now, that's the general rule. So while we were building over here at the church, we've been engaged in a couple of building projects. I would come in sometimes and, and just sit and watch the guys building. And, and every now and again, um, my eye would catch something that's not level, right? And, uh, and then I would say to the builder, I'd say, don't you just want to come and have a look at something with me? And he'd come and stand with me and we'd look and say, is that, is that line over there level? And before he's even looked there, his aunt says, yes, it's level. I, I used a level. So I go, no, no, look, is, is that level? And he'd go, yeah, yeah, I used a level. So then it kind of started a joke from there. I'd say to him, like, are your batteries charged in your level? Are they, you know? And then I said to him, okay, go fetch your level. Bring, bring me your level. And he'd bring his level and then he put it up and so proud, it's spot on in the middle. And I'd tell him, okay, now turn your level around the other way. And he turns the level around the other way and the bubble is no longer in the middle. Now the bubble's up the side, okay? Then I said to him, have you ever dropped this level? And he'd go, yeah, yeah, no, he's dropped it a few times. And then I'd say to him, it's not a level anymore. It's now a straight edge. That's all that that thing is. Because when he dropped the level, the little plastic unit that carries the bubble, it moved. And now you can't check what's level and straight anymore. But he thought it was level. So he would measure the wall, make sure that it's level, go to the next side, use the level. His plumb line, the thing he used for level, had a problem. And so now everything else that he was doing was not level. But he thought it was so eventually we bought the level. It's a church's level. It says SBC on the side of it. 
And we'd go and we'd say, right, now let's check, is it level with this level? Not that level, this level. And then we would check, and I'd go, no, no, it looks like that side must come down. He'd go, yep, I think it must come down. So I'd go, right, measure it, and he'd measure it. And I'd say, all right, you can use your straight edge now. And he'd bring his, his old level back in to try and get it level again. If you're starting at a point where your level is not level, everything else that you build from there is a bit skew. You need to have a place where your starting point is straight and level. And so what Paul is, is, is charging Timothy with and sending Timothy to the church at Ephesus is this. This is a new church. Timothy, I want you to go to this church and I want you to establish the plumb line that everything else is going to be built on. It's the plumb line of doctrine, the plumb line of worship, the plumb line of how families must work together, the plumb line of church leadership, all of those plumb lines. That's the plumb line. That we can look back and as this church grows, it can look back and build itself on that straight line. Because if it starts a bit skew in those early days, then years down the road it ends up like way away from where it should be. Ephesus, the city that, that Timothy lands in, is a key city. It's a, it's a city of commerce. It's a, a great bustling economy. It's a seaport. So people would come in with their, um, with their wares from Europe, and they would, they would land at Ephesus. Ephesus is where modern-day Turkey is. So if you imagine the Mediterranean Sea, if the Mediterranean Sea was this area of the stage, Ephesus is kind of up there at 2 o'clock. That's, that's really where, where you're looking at Ephesus being, modern-day Turkey. Didn't have a Roman uh, garrison in it, so it was unusually large. About 350,000 people lived there. Mixed cultures, mixed religions, uh, mixed races. A whole lot of people. Everybody wanting a piece of the pie. It's kind of like London, modern day city of London, where there's like 200 uh, different nationalities living in the city. Sport was a major um, entertaining force in Ephesus. Um, there were two main groups of sport, uh, two main cultures that influenced sport as we know it today. The one was Greek and the other one was Roman. The Greek sport was uh, where we get the modern day Olympics from. This is uh, running and wrestling and shot put and javelin. And, and typically what you would do is you test your strength against somebody else. And whoever could run faster, throw further... Um, you know, he would be the one who wins. The Romans on the other side, they had this insatiable desire for blood. And so their sports were man against man and whoever lives wins, right? So they had these great gymnasiums. In fact, they had two gymnasiums where the Greeks, the Greek sport would take place. And then they had um, the, the arena that was built by the Romans where they would start to engage in Roman sport. And in the Roman sport, they would take a guy and throw him into the middle of the arena and then let out a line. And if he killed a line, then they just let out another line so that that line could kill him. And then they decided they'd have man against man and they would pull out a slave who's never held a sword in his life and throw him into the middle. And then they would take a soldier who's a seasoned veteran and put him in the middle so that he could kill. And people would love it. They would just love the blood that came from that. Eventually, it would be the Roman sport that would win out against the Greek sport. This is the city of Ephesus, this a wicked, wicked city. Artemis was the, the goddess of Ephesus. People would come to Ephesus to worship this great god, this goddess. It was one of the, the, the wonders of the ancient world. The temple was enormous and she had many priests and priestesses. And uh, they would make little 
artifacts, little, little statues of this God and sell them. And if you had those, then that would bring you good luck. And if you wanted to um, have luck on your side, if you were doing commerce in the city, what you would do is you go buy a couple of these little goddesses so that you could take them with you. And if you had them with you and that person had less and you had more, chances are you would be the one who wins the deal. So you want to buy something cheap, make sure you spend all your money on the gods. Take the gods with you and hopefully it balances itself out. Sex was big business in Ephesus as well. Those who have done um, archaeological digs in Ephesus and seen some of the, the um, mosaics or the paintings that are left of the city, you'd probably class them in the league of pornography today, looking at what happened in that city. In most Roman cities, there were baths where people would go maybe once a week. The rich would go and they would clean themselves in these baths. There would be one big building for men and then another big building for women. And where people would walk around without their clothes on and bath in these baths and talk and, and have fun. In Ephesus, it was just one big building where men and women came together. It was a horrendous place. It was famous for its superstition and magic. And in one occasion when Paul was uh, ministering in Ephesus, people came to know Christ. And many of them were magicians and uh, they were practices um, of sorcery and magic. And, and what they would do after they came to know the Lord, they decided they didn't, wouldn't want to do that anymore. So they took their magic books, the books of spells, and they took all, took all the gods that they had made and these little charms that they made. And they brought them and they burnt them in the middle of the city. It caused such a riot that they wanted to kill Paul. A superstitious city. If I tell you the story of Ephesus, if I just changed the name from Ephesus to New York or Sydney or Seattle or Cape Town or London, it could be any of our cities today. The same things that happened there could be happening in our cities today. The very same thing. It could describe the world that we live in today. Tacitus, the Roman historian, he writes about this time that, uh, that Timothy was in Ephesus, and he writes about the culture of the day, and he says this, I'm entering upon a history, the history of a period rich in disaster, gloomy with wars, rent with seditions, nay, savage in its, hour, in its very hours of peace. Four emperors perished by the sword. There were three civil wars. There were more with foreigners, and some had the character of both at once. Rome wasted by fires, its oldest temples burned, the very capital set in flames by Roman hands. The defilement of sacred rites, adultery in the high places, the sea crowded with exiles, island rocks drenched with murder, yet wilder was the frenzy in Rome. Nobility, wealth, the refusal of office, its acceptance, everything was a crime and virtue was the surest way to ruin. Nor were the rewards of the informers less odious than their deeds. One found his spoils in a priesthood or a consulate, another in a provincial governorship, another behind the throne. All was one delirium of hate and terror. Slaves were bribed to betray their masters, freedmen their patrons, and he who had no foe was betrayed by his friends. We read that and go, well... Tacitus, you must have been a fortune teller because it kind of sounds like the world we live in. And so while we're, while we're reading about this, this man, Timothy, that Paul is entrusting to go to Ephesus, understand this, church, that, that the, the climate of the day was very much like the climate we have today. 
So when Paul's writing to Timothy and saying, Timothy, teach people not to do this, when we read that, we think, oh, well, that must have been pretty easy for him. No, no, it's that thing is as relevant for us today because the culture we live in is as decadent and evil as the culture where Timothy lived. Timothy's a young man. He's about 35 years old. He came to know the Lord uh, very early on. Uh, when Paul was on his first missionary trip, the story goes that Paul probably stayed with, uh, with Timothy's mom and his dad and his gran. Timothy's mom was a Jewess. His dad was Greek. So Timothy was a mixed of mixed race. Not only mixed race, he also grew up in a mixed religious home where his dad was um, engaging in the, the religions of the Gentiles and his mom was a Jewess. His mom and gran come to know the Lord very early on and Timothy is named as the very first second generation Christian in the New Testament. That is someone who got saved in a Christian home. He probably comes to know the Lord under Paul's um, leading and Paul's ministry. And later on, he starts to follow Paul. When he's about 20, he leaves with Paul and he goes on missionary journeys with Paul. He plants churches with Paul. He goes to prison with Paul and he co-writes some of the New Testament with Paul. This church at Ephesus that Timothy was leading, was, uh, it was Paul's first trip. Uh, his first trip to Ephesus was on his second missionary journey. Paul had three missionary journeys. On his way back from his second missionary journey, he stops off at Ephesus and some people come to know the Lord at Ephesus. And a small church starts. And his third trip, he goes back to Ephesus and he stays there for two years teaching people about the Lord, teaching people what it means to follow Jesus, discipling leaders and raising up leaders. This was all in about AD 52. So AD 52, this church is planted. In AD 57, Paul makes a call to the, the elders of the Ephesian church. And he's on his way back to Rome and he's going to be executed his way to Jerusalem. He knows he's going to die. And uh, he meets with the Ephesian elders on the beach at Miletus and they pray together. You'll remember the story in Acts 20. They're on their knees around him and these men are weeping because they know they're not going to see him anymore. They beg him not to go. And they tell him, if you go, you're going to die. And Paul goes, look, I have to go. I know this is what the Lord wants. That's AD 57. In AD 60, Paul from prison writes a letter to the Ephesian church. It's the book of Ephesus, uh, Ephesians, the book of Ephesians written to this church at Ephesus. Fast forward about 35 years or so, and another letter is written to the church at Ephesus. This time, the letter is not written by human hands. This time, the letter is from Jesus himself. John is dictating the letter, and Jesus is speaking a letter to the church at Ephesus together with six other churches in the book of Revelation. And Jesus says uh, to this church, he says, I've seen what you've done, and some of those things are noble, but I hold these things against you. You've lost your first love. You've lost your first love. And I want you to go back and I want you to repent. And I want you to do the things that you did at first. And if you don't go back and repent and do the things that you did at first, I'm going to come and I'm going to take your lamp from its place. The picture was there were seven churches. And the picture that John had was there were seven lamps. And each lamp represented a church. And Jesus was in the middle. And he's walking in this room with seven lamps. And each one represents a church. And Jesus says, if Ephesus, if you guys don't repent and go back to the things you did at first, I'm going to take your lamp from its place and you'll no longer be a church. There will only be six churches in this room and you will not be one of them. The sad story is that the Ephesian church does not repent, does not go back to do the things that they did at first. 
And history tells us, and today we know, there is no church in Ephesus. So, about 57 AD is where Paul is meeting with these elders. 52 AD is where the church gets planted. 52, 57. How many years difference is that? I'll give you a clue. <laughs> All right, five. From a church plant with people freshly coming to know Jesus there to elders. Elders praying on the beach. All the men, can you raise your hands? All the men, just put your hands up quickly. promise you I'm not going to get you to volunteer for anything. You can put up your hands. Right, those of you who have been uh, believers, you've been trusting in Jesus for more than five years, keep your hands up. All right, how many of you want to be elders? <laughs> Eight o'clock, same thing. They were like, oh, you said you weren't going to ask us to do anything, Matt. See, here's the interesting thing. Church plant after church plant after church plant, when we're meeting with church planters and praying for church planters, they'll say to us, we're praying for elders. We're, we're praying for elders. How long have you been planting for? Well, we're in year eight. We're praying that God would raise up elders. We're praying that God would raise up men who would lead their homes. We're praying that God would raise up men who are into sound doctrine, who trust in God, who are growing in their faith. We, we're praying that God would raise up men who are in love with the church who are not in love with business as much as they're in love with church. This is what we're praying for. Well, Paul got it right after five years. There were men in Ephesus who came to know Christ and gave themselves fully to the word of God, gave themselves fully to the passing on of faith. And within five years, these men were elders in the church. Man, I want you to know that being an elder is not something that you have to be a Christian for 20 years before you become an elder because you know you've served your time. That's not what being an elder is. Being an elder is somebody who submits himself to Jesus and pursues Jesus, pursues God's word, and says, God, would you do whatever you want in my life? The Bible says if you pursue that position and you desire that position, you desire a noble task. That, that ambition is a noble ambition, the Bible says. So you have this church that is no more. Around about AD 95, the warning comes. AD 60, the church is still pumping. So it's about 35 years later. Question, who were the leaders in AD 95? Those leaders were probably the youth and the young people of AD 60. When the book of Ephesians was written, so the church that was written to when the book of Ephesians was written, their children became the leaders of the church, and they were the ones who got warned about repenting and going back and doing the things at first. And they were the ones that didn't lead the church. Here's some lessons for us. The church is always one step away from irrelevancy. Always. The church is always one generation away from dying out. Parents, if we're not passing on faith, genuine faith to our children, do not expect this church to be functioning in 30 years' time. If it's that quick, 30 years' time, if you are not passing on faith, the Christian heritage in your family can die out if you don't pass on faith to your children. If your children don't see Jesus in you, that Christian legacy in your family and in our spiritual family of this church can die out. That's what happened. It's into this that Paul will send Timothy. And so 1 Timothy chapter 1, let's pick up there. If you don't have a Bible, the words on the screen behind you, behind me. I'm going to read. And then we'll comment in. 
Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. So God is our Savior. Christ Jesus is our hope. He's an apostle, not by his own will. It is by the command of God. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. My true child. These guys have been working together for about 15 years at this point. This is my true child in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace. Normally Paul says grace and peace to you, but for for Timothy, he includes mercy. We'll comment on this just now. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. In other words, there's a doctrine that's meant to be taught, orthodoxy, the authentic doctrine, the authentic gospel, and some people are teaching something that's different to that. There's a plumb line, and some people are teaching something different. I want you to tell those people to stop teaching the thing that's different. Nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. So these myths and genealogies, it, it, it was common practice in the day to, to try and track back your genealogy. Keep tracking it back. Um, keep uh, trying to figure out who was your dad's 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 dad, especially if you became famous. Alexander the Great, they tracked back his heritage to Hercules. That, that's right. Hercules. You all know there's no such person as Hercules, right? It's just a story. Did you know that? Just a story. Except they tracked his great-great-daddy, Hercules. But what they would do with that is they would just have the conversation. Well, that's amazing. It was, it was Hercules. And then Hercules, he had some friends. Those friends did these things. And, and then Hercules, he had this child. And this child had this child. And they did this. And they would fabricate stories and fables about all these famous people and track it all the way down to Alexander the Great. So that Alexander the Great could do nothing. He'd do absolutely nothing with that knowledge. Surely, if your ancestry goes back to, to Hercules... Surely you're like, I'm strong to help the poor. I'm strong to step up. No, no, no that's, that's not how it worked there. It was just, oh, it's quite cool to have your ancestry, you know, to be Hercules. I remember Oprah Winfrey show once. Um, Oprah had tracked back through some diviner her um, reincarnate. She is the reincarnated version of, and she tracked it all the way back as Zulu princess. A Zulu princess. And I wondered at that time, why does nobody track their heritage to like a Zulu servant? Or in my family line, it was quite a shock. I'm, you, I'm sorry that I have to let everyone in on this, mom and dad. My family line goes back to cattle servants in Germany in the 1700s. We're not famous, nothing. That's on the one side. We're cattle servants. I think we got kicked out of Germany. They didn't want them. They were such bad servants. They kicked them out and sent them to South Africa. And they worked really hard here. And I'm really proud of them. But they really were cattle servants. That was it. The history books tell us they're cattle servants. You know, I'd love to fabricate that and go like, well, you know, track back my ancestry, German duke. That's what we were. No one ever tracks it back. and, and it, No one goes down ancestry. Everyone's like, I'm from this famous, I'm a Zulu princess. Really? How did you work that out? And somebody told her who tracked back into, spoke to the dead and found out that she was a Zulu princess. 
Well, that's what was happening. These genealogies that mean nothing. The truth is it means nothing. Even if you did come from a great German duke, it means nothing. Because are you a German duke today? Are you, are you Hercules today? Are you a Zulu princess today? Because what you do with your life today is what counts, not what you do with the life that you inherited from somebody else years and years ago. So he says, I want them, these people, so there are people who are teaching a different doctrine. I want you to tell them to stop. Also, there are people who kind of engage in these senseless conversations that promote speculation. It's not conversations that have any truth in them. It promotes speculation. And, uh, and, and, and here's the thing. It takes us away from being good stewards of good doctrine. He says here, he says, these speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. God has given us doctrine in his word. He's given us his word and said, here it is. And we take this and we're stewards of sound doctrine. As believers and as those in the Christian faith, those who, whose lives have been transformed by the gospel, we take this gospel and we pass this gospel on. As good stewards, we pass it on to one another. We pass it on to our children, our friends. But there are those who are so busy with speculations that they're missing being good stewards of God's word. It's like they've dropped this aside and gone, let's talk about speculation. And it wasn't only something that happened then, it's something that happens now in the world that we live in right now. If you like this and share it, 10 angels will come and bless you today. And so we like and share, and we wait for 10 angels. The 10 angels are not coming to bless you. They're killing themselves laughing. That, that's what they're doing. If you really believe in Jesus, you will tag a friend and pass this on. Because we do know that, you know, Matthew 29 says, you know, if you love Jesus, you'll pass on the Facebook post, right? No, no you see, there's no Matthew 29 and there's no verse that says that either. But we do believe in those things. And instead of us coming and confessing our sin to the Lord, we try and discover what the sin is and then try and have a conversation to find out, why am I doing that? Is it because my dad did it? Is it because my mother did it? Is it because my great-great-uncle who died did it? And, 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 and oh, it must be a demon, and the demon's name is this, and that one's name is this. And, and so we track this thing. And when the Bible says what you do with your sin is you confess it before the Lord, and you deal with it, finished, that's it. If there's a demonic thing, you cast it out. That's the thing. That's how we deal with this. But we get so wrapped up in these speculative conversations. And those who have them sound so clever. But what we've done is we've become bad stewards of God's word because much of that is not in God's word anyway. It's something that's learned from extra-biblical sources. It says, in verse 6, uh, sorry, verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, that's a good heart, a pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying all the things about which they make confident assertions. Here, here, there's two things here. One, they don't know what they're saying. So they're saying stuff and they don't know, even know what's coming out of their mouth. 
In the other one is, the thing that they're talking about, they don't understand the subject matter themselves. One of the commentators I was reading, he says, in most fields, when you are seen as an instructor, it assumes you've had to do some kind of research or study before. So if this was a medical conference and I was presenting a paper on how lungs work and you were all uh, ear, nose, and throat specialists, you would assume that I have a medical degree, right? You would assume that I know something about lungs and I've spent some time studying that and my papers have been peer-reviewed. You would assume that and you would be right to assume that. But this commentator said, isn't it interesting that in the Christian world, anyone who has a voice can be seen as an expert. You don't have to have studied theology to be an expert. You just have to be able to type in G-O-O-G-L-E. And if you can type that in, you can get any information you like and you can send it out like you're an expert. And the sad thing is we believe people who say those things. People who themselves don't have a clue what they're saying and they don't have a clue about the subject matter. Once had a conversation with somebody who had set himself up as the policeman of East London um, to, to kind of attack all, all Christians in the city who he felt was wrong and didn't subscribe to his brand of Christianity. Can you see the problem in that? It's, it's not going like, you know what, you're a cult, this church that I'm a part of. You know, true doctrine says this, you're doing that, you're a cult. That's not what it is. It was his version of Christianity. So there was no one in Christendom that he agreed with. So I asked him, I said, so who would you agree with? What well-known teachers would you agree with? Didn't know any. And, and then I just, in the conversation, I said, so um, where did you study or get your theological degree? And, and suddenly this conversation just went anti. And he said, well, what has that got to do with anything? Because the Holy Spirit is my teacher and I have the Bible and you have the Bible. So I said, I, I know that. But are you saying that you're coming to hold all the pastors accountable and uh, you're coming to hammer every pastor, but you yourself have not stu actually studied God's word and studied what 2,000 years of teachers of God's word have said as well. You're starting at, no, at like ground level and you're accusing everybody else. As, he said, well, what that got to do with anything? I said, well, here's just a simple example. When I say the word to you, pneumatology, I know a whole lot that goes with that word. But I'm trying to explain to you how you spell the word. There's the difference right there. When a doctor comes to you and he explains how sick you are and he uses a big word, that big word, he can spend three hours explaining what the big word means. You and I, we're still trying to get the pronunciation of the big word. Right? But there are those that have caught themselves up in all these speculative conversations. They don't understand what they're talking about. And when you have a conversation with them, it's like you're not going that way or that way or that way or that way. It's like, where are we going in this conversation? It seems to go round and round in circles. Have you ever had conversations like that? Paul goes on. And he says this now, verse 8. Now we know that the law is good. Pardon? The law is. How can the law be good? The law is good if one uses it lawfully. So there's a lawful way to use the law and an unlawful way. Lawful way and unlawful way to use the law. If you use it in a lawful way, it is good. If you use it in an unlawful way, it's bad. Understanding this, that the law was not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers. Now you'd pick up, he's kind of mirroring the Ten Commandments here, actually. He's mirroring them. 
Verse 10, he says, and now he goes into not the, this and this, this and this. Now he starts speaking about single things. Verse 10, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In case you think that your sin has been let off here, he's going, and everything else that is contrary to sound doctrine. And just in case you read that list and you go, man, well, that's not me, and that's not me, and that's not me. In case you read that, may I remind you of two things Jesus said? One, if you've ever looked lustfully at another woman, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. Number two, if you hate your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. Okay? So Jesus just moves it straight away. See, when we read that, we go, I'm not as bad as those people. I'm not as bad as the murderer. I'm not as bad as the homosexual person. I'm not as bad as those people. Well, actually, what Jesus said is, yes, you are. You are. So get off your judgmental ha horse and, uh, and let's come and make right, because the foot of the cross, it's level. Right? It's level. And so Paul goes on. And he says this. In accordance with the gospel, so the sound doctrine, everything that's contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted, with which I have been entrusted. This true gospel, the true doctrine, orthodox doctrine, is the gospel of the glory of God. It's not just the gospel. He doesn't just say the gospel of God. It's the gospel of the glory of God. When the gospel is preached, when we understand true gospel, when we understand true doctrine, it always brings glory to God and builds the church. If it's not bringing glory to God and it's not building the church, it's not true gospel. It's not true doctrine. It's not the foundational plumb line. The foundational plumb line is bring glory to God and build the church. Right? Strengthen the church. Now, four parts of this that I want to leave you with today. The first one I want to have a look at is our fuel. The other one, our goal. The other one, our instruction. And the last one is our new view of the law. These, these four assets come out of this picture of establishing a plumb line, and in this case, for true doctrine. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, it says, To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father. Now watch this. We've spoken about grace so many times, but I want you to see this as the tenderness of a father speaking to a son. You are my true son in the faith. It, Paul is, it, literally he's saying, you are my true legitimate son. That's what he's saying. Now we know that Timothy wasn't his biological son, but Paul in speaking like this, he's saying, you are my true legitimate son. He's giving him the authority to take the apostolic witness to Ephesus in saying that. This is my son, everybody, putting his arm around him. He's going, hey, Ephesus, I have appointed him to do the job. This is my son. I'm sending him to you. He didn't decide to do this by himself. I'm sending it to you. But then he focuses in on Timothy, remembering T Timothy's this, he's a shy guy, right? He's shy. He struggles with his self-esteem. He's regularly wanting affirmation. Physically, he struggled as well. Paul tells him in one occasion, Timothy, stop drinking so much water and drink some wine, for goodness sake, for the sake of your stomach. You're sick. I need you to do that. But he's fiercely loyal, Timothy. And so Paul will say to him, grace, mercy, peace. Grace is this beautiful thing. It's a freeing thing. It's, it's, it's universal that God would give it to everybody. But it's, it's beautiful. This is what one of the commentators says about grace. 
He says this, grace is a comprehensive word gathering up all that may be supposed to be expressed in the smile of a heavenly king looking down upon his people. The smile of a heavenly king looking down on his people. Hey, Sterling, can you just for a moment imagine the smile of your heavenly king looking down on you? Can you for just a second get a picture of what that must look like, God smiling at you? Because sometimes we don't get that picture. Often what we're seeing is not the smile of a heavenly king, but we're seeing the frown of an angry judge. But if you've put your faith in Christ, God looks at you with a smile. He smiles on you. There's the warm, tender kiss of a parent on the cheek of a little baby. That God would look at us. That's grace. When Paul says, Timothy, grace to you. Mercy to you, Timothy. Literally, Timothy, may God be good to you. Here's this young man. He's, he's kind of he's nervous. He's not all that confident. And, God's, and Paul's writing to him and saying, Timothy, may God be with you. In the Psalms, the Hebrew version of this word is used 127 times. There's only 150 Psalms. 127 times this word is used. And it's used like this. The meaning of help in a time of need. If ever Timothy's in a time of need, it's now. I mean, he's got to get up and correct people. He's got to raise up elders. He's got to preach regularly. He's got to pastor people. He's got to teach fathers how to be fathers and mothers how to be mothers. And he probably isn't a father yet. And he's definitely not a mother yet. But he's got to teach these people to do things. I remember when I first started leading the team over here at Sterling. And I'd stand up in this pulpit and just look around and go, I remember you taught me and you taught me. And, uh, and you were a church when, uh, the church that I grew up in when I was, uh, you know, seven years old. And, and you watched me go to my matric dance. And, and now I'm needing to coach you and preach God's word to you and rebuke you when you sin and encourage you to push deeper into the Lord. Have an idea of what it must have been like for Timothy in that moment. But in that moment, Paul says, mercy to you, Timothy. May God be good to you, Timothy. In your time of need, may God come and give you what you need. And the next one, grace, mercy, peace, is may you have the opposite of all conflict and strife. The people of the day understood what that meant because they were taught that their lives meant nothing, that their lives were out of control. And it may be something of what we're feeling like as South Africans at the moment. If you're following um, economic reviews and you're following the headlines, you're just going, my goodness, um, it looked like the rand was really strong, but today it's really bad. And I feel like I'm out of control. Who's in control of this? Well, Paul would say to us, as he said to Timothy, and peace to you, that in God, may, you, may there be absence of conflict and strife and worry and stress. How many of you would love that? The absence of worry and stress. I was thinking it would have been so good to preach the sermon last weekend instead of this weekend. You know, just before the 25th, preach the sermon then. So we can understand what it's like to, be, to have no worry and no stress. Well, the promise from God is that you can get peace from him. See, when Jesus came and moved into people's lives in the Roman world, they understood that there's something great about Jesus because he's, he's given us peace. That in a world that looks like it has no peace, civil wars, wars, death, there's peace. And Christians who were going to the stake to be burnt. And Christians who were being thrown to the lions. And Christians who were having their heads cut off. Paul in jail writing to Timothy. 
knowing he's going to have his head cut off, Timothy, grace and peace to you. Grace and peace to you. The source of this grace, mercy, and peace is God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. This is where it comes from. It's not something that, it's not a self-help thing, this, right? You don't look at yourself in the mirror every morning and say, grace to you, grace to you, peace to you, peace to you, mercy. No, that's not how you do this. This I get from being in a relationship with God. Being in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, knowing that he smiles affectionately on me, knowing that he's there in my time of need, and he promises that if I, if I push into him, that he'll deliver me from worry and stress. The second part is our goal. So that was our fuel, what fuels us. The next is our goal, and it's always good to have a, a goal, and it's good to be have something you can aim at. He says the goal is this. The aim of our charge is love. That's it. The aim of the Christian charge is love. So he's about to go on this list of sinners and this list of things that are sins, but he says, hey, the aim is love. So if the aim is love, when I start talking about these things, know that you should love these people. So you read that list and ask yourself this question. Do I love people who do these things? Because the Bible says you should. The Bible says we need to love the Lord our God. We've spoken about that. We need to love our neighbor. We spoke about that. We need to love one another. We spoke about that. But you know there's another love? Love your enemy. Love your enemy. The Bible tells us that we need to love our enemy. And this love comes from, number one, a pure heart. I love this. It says a pure heart. The one commentator explained this word pure, what it meant in the original language. It was used to, to speak about a Roman garrison or a Roman uh, legion. And what they would do is they'd go through the legion and they would take out all the cowards and all the people who were afraid to fight. So they would remember that these guys hid behind the tent when they went into battle. While everyone else was being stabbed, these guys were hiding behind the tent, behind a shield. And they were like, you, 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 out. And the guys were like, oh, thank goodness. You don't have to fight. And they went around to the tent where they were hiding. And there was a guy with a sword who killed him. Okay? Just, you're gone. Goodbye. What happened was the army that was left is now full of courageous, brave soldiers. The army that is meant to be brave has been purged of its cowardly soldiers. A pure heart is a heart that has been purged of everything that is evil within it. It's a heart that's been purged of fear. It's a heart that's been purged of sin. It's a heart that comes before God and says, God, I'm fully courageous before you. I have a heart that's set apart for you. And when you have a heart like that, you'll find loving a whole lot easier. A good conscience is, conscience is the way you think about yourself. Your motives. You know your motives. I don't know your motives. We could off pass the collection bag around and you could pull out a wad of 100 rand notes and drop them into the collection bag. And everybody else could look at you and go, wow, what an amazing person. Such a godly man. Such a godly woman. But inside, you're going, man, I hope people saw that. I hope people saw you know, don't, don't drop it now. That person looks like they're turning their head. Let them see. Let them see. Okay, they're looking. All right, close your eyes and raise your hand. Drop it in the bag. What's your motivation? What's your conscience like? Your clear conscience, the way that you think about yourself, the way that you see your motivation. Is your conscience clear before the Lord? Because Paul says that if your conscience is, then love becomes a whole lot easier. And then he speaks about sincere faith, not a hypocritical faith, sincere faith. Not faith that does one thing and says another thing over here, but a faith that is pure before God. It is a sincere faith. 
You know what the good thing about this is? I can come before Jesus, my Savior, and I can come before him and say, my heart is broken before you. God, my heart is not pure. God, would you come and purge that out? Because salvation is not something that I've done to earn this. It's, it's you've done it. So would you come and purge my heart? God, I have to be totally honest that I'm doing things for attention. And God, I have to be totally honest that, that I really like it when people see me putting money in the collection bag. But God, would you deliver me from that? God, would you give me a clear conscience that whatever I do, I know that there's a, a clear conscience. And the Bible says that if we confess that to God, he will, he'll deliver us. That's the beautiful thing about it. I bring it to him and he takes it away. The third one is our instruction. It says, charge certain people not to teach a different doctrine. Tell them that they need to stop teaching that. Tell people that they need to stop engaging in these superstitious conversations. Sterling, we need to stop these things. When you find yourself getting wrapped up in superstitious conversation, you need to move away from that. You need to not engage in superstitious conversation. You need to move away from those conversations because it takes your attention away from being a good steward of God's word. It takes your attention away from sound doctrine. Instead, now what you're doing is we're kind of going, well, I'm leading this way and now you have to make up truth as you go along because you've abandoned truth. Truth is here. This is what sound doctrine is. This is what truth is. But now I'm moving this way. Be very careful. If, if you're engaging yourself in some kind of Christian conversation or conversation about God, and the content of the conversation cannot be found in Scripture, may I suggest that you've moved yourself into the realm of you should be stopping now. This is our standard. The experience of man is not our standard. And Google is definitely not our standard. The standard is God's Word. And God's Word is pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. Because if Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you must become like a child, it means that this should be able to be understood by a child. Charge certain people not to devote themselves to these myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship. And be prepared to engage. Be prepared to engage. God's word says, prepare your mind for action. So are you prepared for action? Have you spent time in God's word? Here's an idea. Before next week, read through... Read through 1 Timothy, the whole thing. Just read through it. It's a couple of chapters. It's not long. But read through it. And read through it again. Maybe once a day. Just read through it. And get familiar with what God is saying and what Paul was saying to Timothy. So you can be familiar. Prepare your minds for action. Because we live in a world that is desperately seeking answers from you. Not from me. you living there. They're expecting answers from you. So be prepared. Last one is we get a new view of the law. So he says here, he says, I want you to know there's this fuel that drives us. We have a goal that is love. And, uh, and, and, and our instruction, we need to stop people from teaching stuff that is not godly. And he says this. He says, we get a new view of the law. So, so Timothy, I'm not wanting you to come and lay down a whole lot of legalism. You can't do this. You can't do this. You can't do this. You can't do this. Because true faith, the true gospel, gives us a new view of the law. It's, it's brand new. Listen to what God's word says about this. He'll say, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, not unlawfully. If you use it unlawfully, it's bad. If you use it lawfully, it's good. What is the lawful use of, the, of God's word, of, of the law? Galatians 3, verse 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. 
the law watched over us. The law showed us what we can do and what we can't do until Jesus came. Because when Jesus came, faith came. Before Jesus came, we had to just keep the law the whole time. You can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. But when I put my faith in Christ, now things change. Because now I can be saved because of Jesus. Not because of me, but because of Jesus. The law was given to prove that you can't keep it. That's why the law was given. So the correct use of the law is, does it lead me to Jesus? Yes. Great. That's the correct use of the law. The next great use of the law is, law needs to govern society that we live in. Now, sometimes I have conversations with people and they say, oh, no, you're Baptist. You're so legalistic. I go, really? How do you know? When last were you in a Baptist church? No, I've never been to a Baptist church. How do you know we're legalistic? No, I heard. Okay, so you heard we're legalistic. Is there a problem with like, rules? And I mean, I'm just asking. Yes, no, we should never have those things. Okay, so you would say it's okay to drive your car as fast as you like. Uh, you would say that that's okay. It's okay to, uh, to, to get completely drunk and high on all kinds of drugs and then operate power, power tools and pick up a chainsaw and swing it around at a, in a playground with kids. Is that, is that okay? Oh, no, that's not okay. Why not? Well, that's not right. How do you know it's not right? Well, you don't do stuff like that. Why not? It's against the law. Oh, so law's okay. See? Law brings me to Jesus. Second one, law governs society that we live in. Third one, law helps us understand how to treat people as believers. It helps us. It helps us to understand. When we see instruction in God's word, it helps us to understand. But knowing this, that I can never keep all the law. And if I set myself up as one who can keep all the law, if I break one, I break it all. Because what I'm doing when I say I can keep it all is I'm putting myself in the place of Messiah and Savior. And I'm saying, Jesus, I don't need you. Because I can keep all the law. And here's the problem that we have as Christians. When you've been a Christian for a very long time, you kind of start thinking that you're good enough. You start thinking, well, it's been a long time since I murdered somebody. It's, it's been a very long time since I stole. You know, I don't commit adultery. You know, I'm, I'm not a liar. Okay, well, I'm still struggling there. And then you think, well, I'm brilliant. Look at me. I'm great. Man, the Bible says that you break one, you break it all, and you need Jesus. It's because of him. It's not because of you. It's not because of your strength, your ability. It's because of Jesus. It's all because of him. So there's a new way to look at the law. Psalm 119 verse, 5, verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I wish we had time to read through Psalm just 119, showing you the different times where God's word says, that your word, your law, your precepts are my delights. I love them. There's something that happens in me when we see, the scriptures say, there's something that happens in me, God, when I see your law, and I know that it's good for me. I know that it's good. It's not bad. It's good. It's good for me to follow your law because when I follow your law, there's blessing for me. So friends, as we wrap it up this morning, let me ask you this question. If the plumb line of doctrine is here, are you finding yourself being pulled into speculative conversation? Do you need to kind of come back to God's word? Are you finding yourself being more intrigued by watching the, the Christian speaker on TV or the Christian uh, preacher in church on Sunday or reading the Christian book, the latest Christian book from the Christian bookshop, then spending time in God's word and being a steward of sound doctrine? Are you, spending, are you, are you being more intrigued by that and more attracted by that? Do you find that you're, when you click share, you feel like, oh, God noticed me. 
Because if you do, your relationship with God is in the wrong place. Because God doesn't notice you because you click share. God noticed you because he is a God of love who created you before the whole world. He created you and predestined that you would come to know him. Maybe today your, your heart is, is broken and uh, your conscience is not clean before the Lord. And you need to get that right before him. So let's bow our heads and let me give you a moment and we'll close out. Would you respond before the Lord this morning? Would you respond to him and perhaps it's uh, you're coming to response, respond in repentance this morning? You're just coming and saying, God, I'm so sorry. Maybe it's a hard one. Maybe today you're going, God, what this guy's been preaching has been really hard. I don't know if I agree with it all. Some of it I feel like has been harsh. Some of it not harsh, just... But I don't think that I'm there, but I'm finding myself getting super agitated. Would you just allow God the space to come and minister to you? God, I'm getting agitated. Why? Ask him why. God, would you search my heart? Would you search my conscience? And if God's showing you stuff, would you just ask him to forgive you? Would you cast that over to him? If you've never, ever given your life to Jesus, your life is still running around ducking and diving because you see God as a judge and you don't see him as a father yet. Come before him and just ask him, God, would you forgive me of my sin? Jesus, would you come and make me brand new? Would your Holy Spirit come and live in me? I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry for sinning against you. Just thank him for dying on the cross for you. Father, as we wrap it up, would you help us to see our city the way you see our city? Would we be fine stewards of sound doctrine wherever we work, live, and play? May we continue to strive for the goal of, of loving people. God, would you help us as these weeks um, unfold? Would you help us to understand more grace, peace, mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.